With that said, tonight I am going to touch a little bit on archaeology and walk us through from Abraham to Christ to Yeshua coming. And I want you to, we're just going to get a little bit of that tonight, but I will work our way through it as we go. Tonight, we're not going to get very far, but I want you to understand some of the things that I speak on when it comes to the creation ministry showing the authority of the, the scriptures is um, the timing of, well, the secular world's every timing is off. Whether it be the pharaohs and the dating of the pharaohs or the dating methods from carbon dating or other radioisotope dating methods to their history, archaeology. Now, their archaeology is off because so few people realize that all of archaeology is based on the pharaohs. So if the pharaohs is off, so is all the archaeology. So you might hear things like Jericho being 9,000 years old and things like that. Well, I believe the earth is probably just around 6,000 years old. So if that's the case, how do you have Jericho being 9,000 years old? doesn't fit. You'll go to museums, even in Israel, and you're going to see dates that are in the 15,000 and 20,000 and all of this, and it just doesn't make any sense. Well, you're going to find out why that is here tonight in a little bit anyway. Um, one of the things that everything is based off of is the Exodus. And the Exodus we know took place in 1445 BC. I'm going to explain how we know that here coming up. Now, according to the secular world, 1445 BC is in the 18th dynasty of Egypt. That's when Ramses is Pharaoh. And as a result, um, they look for Ramses there. I'm not going to talk about the pharaohs tonight outside of I'll tell you this, that Time magazine says there's no evidence that Israel was in Egypt. And that's because the 18th dynasty is the most recorded dynasty of all dynasties. Everything the pharaoh did is recorded just about. And we have not a single record of the Exodus, the Nile River turning to blood, any of the ten plagues, the army getting wiped out, nothing, not even a hint that you could read between the lines on. Okay? May I point out that Time Magazine had Hitler as their man of the year? Well, that's true. So, what we're seeing is that something is wrong. Either that 1445 date is wrong, but as you're going to see, the Bible pretty much is going to nail that. So, it can't be that date wrong, it must mean something else is wrong. And I'm going to show you another time that it's the 18th dynasty that's wrong. 1445 and the 18th dynasty of Egypt do not line up. Like I said, I'm not going to explain why tonight. I will another night. But I'll tell you this much. That when we go to the 12th and 13th dynasty of Egypt, we do see in the Egyptian records that they record the Nile River turned to blood. It does record that there was a seven-year famine in which somebody stored up food and distributed it out to save the lives of people. We do see it recorded that all of Pharaoh's army was killed, that Pharaoh and his army, that even Pharaoh was taken away by poor men, it says in their records. So we do have lots and lots of evidence of the Exodus. It's just not in the 18th dynasty, it's in the 12th dynasty. And there are very good reasons why they have it wrong. Okay? 
With that said, I want you to see that if the Exodus is in 1445 BC, we know that Jericho is going to fall in 1405 BC. They're out in the wilderness for 40 years. And then David becomes king in 1010 BC. Now from the secular world, that means Jericho is falling in the late bronze period. David is in the beginning of the Iron Age II period. There's different sections of this. You may not remember that. That's okay. But my point in it, bringing it up tonight is this, that if the secular part is true, not only should there be evidence of the, ex, uh, you know, the, the exodus out of Egypt, but you should find archaeological evidence of them being in the desert for 40 years. Well, two million people wandering around in the desert is going to leave some sort of footprint. But in the 18th dynasty, that time period, there isn't any. However, in the Middle Bronze period, we call it the MB period, we do see that there are a whole bunch of new people coming in and living in the land of Israel. Now, archaeology says that. The archaeologists, the secular archaeologists also say, yeah, there are all kinds of new people coming into Israel during the Middle Bronze period. We just don't know who they are. They're not Israelites, though. Why not? Well, because they're still in Egypt. And because they believe that, they don't know who these people are who came in. Yet the evidence is saying, well, those are the Israelites. Your timing is off. When the timeline is corrected, then all of this does get corrected as well. We also see in the Iron Age II period, um, it is a time of poverty. This is when they say David is ruling. Well, that doesn't fit with Scripture either. David was a very rich king. Solomon, even richer yet. And so, uh, once again, this is why they're saying, see, archaeology proves the Bible wrong. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's just that their timing is indeed off. If you go towards then, uh, well, in the proper time here, as you can see on this slide. Um, yeah, yep, that's going to be further in there. So Middle Bronze 1 is when Jericho is going to fall instead. In the second Middle Bronze period, that is when David is ruling. And it just so happens that in the Middle Bronze 2 period, it is one of the most affluential time periods of prosperity in the land. So that seems to fit perfectly that this is the time of the Israelites. How do we justify this? I'll give you just a quick rundown. As I said, 1445 BC lines up with being in the 18th dynasty, towards the end of the 18th dynasty. There's a number of problems with this. Number one, uh, Luxor is the capital of Egypt in the 18th dynasty. The Bible seems to say that Memphis is the capital. We also see that uh, Ramses is the pharaoh of that time. The Bible says pharaoh is going to be drowned in the Red Sea and yet I've seen the mummy of Ramses. So if I can see Ramses, then that's not right. So, and many other things that we could see that just don't line up. But how do we get these dynasties? You can see 31 up here. Those are the 31 dynasties of Egypt, of the pharaohs that the secular world tells us was there. I agree that those 31 dynasties were there for the most part. What I don't agree with is the timing of them. 
They have it beginning at 3100 BC. How do they get that? Well, we know that Alexander the Great conquered Egypt and put an end to it. There was no more Egyptian pharaohs after Alexander the Great conquered it in 322 BC or 332 BC. So all they do is they are going to say, well, we know there was this pharaoh, that we know there was this pharaoh, and this pharaoh, and this pharaoh, and this pharaoh, and they work backwards, and it takes them all the way back to 3100 BC. That is how you get the date. Well, how do we know that there was this pharaoh, this pharaoh, this pharaoh, and how long they rule? By one man. One man named Manetho. He was an Egyptian priest that when Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, they conscripted him to give a record of all the pharaohs. So he gave a list of all the pharaohs. How long they ruled. That's how we get it. The problem with this is we don't have Manetho's writings. We only have people quoting what Manetho said, not Manetho's writings himself. Many of the people quoting what Manetho says even contradict each other. So one says Manetho said this, another says Manetho said that. So that's an issue. The most reliable records, quoting Manetho, even say that when Manetho recorded these, he didn't say they were one right after the other, but they ruled contemporary. Many of these were ruling at the same time. You had a northern and a southern kingdom. And, I mean, if you think about it, we have the Nile River area, the place that was populated by people back then, is 620 miles long. Can you imagine ruling 620 miles with a chariot and a horse? This is why you had rulers in the northern part and in the southern part. And Manetho said that these pharaohs, some of them, ruled contemporary. Because when they were in the same dynasties, you have the same family. And that's how it worked. Okay? So, it is very reasonable to say, rather than going one right after the other, saying that some of these ruled at the same time, that that time period of the pharaohs is going to be shortened even up to a thousand years quite easily. There is another issue, even from secular archaeologists, Egyptologists, who are now saying that something called the TIP never existed. The TIP stands for the Third Intermediate Period. It's dynasties 21 through 25. And that this TIP, we have absolutely no record of that. It covered about 250 years of history, so that would also get rid of time if that didn't exist. And more and more Egyptologists are coming on board saying that's the case. Regardless, we can see that it's easy to lose a thousand years of history, as I said. We believe that the chronology began at 2100 BC, not 3100 BC. So when you line up those 31 dynasties with a 2100 BC beginning, it puts 1445 BC not in the 18th dynasty, but at the end of the 12th dynasty. And it is there that we see all of these records that I was telling you about, that another time I will share with you those actual records. Some of them we have actually put in the museum and broken bow. But <clears throat> I say this because it's important to understand what we're going to talk about tonight 
that we have a corrected timeline looking in the MB1 and MB2 period, not the Iron Age period for things like this, okay? So, where does it all begin? It starts at Abraham. After the flood, everybody went to Tower of Babel, right? In the plains of Shinar in Babylon. God confuses their languages. They spread out probably into 70 nations. Some of them, then, they're in Babylon and in Ur of the Chaldeans was a, a pagan society. Now, if you read in the, the book of Jasher and some of these others, it's very interesting to get perspective on may, maybe what was going on during that time that the Bible is silent on. And you can see that Abraham would have been growing up in a very ungodly society. And when God called him, this was a dangerous thing. This wasn't just, oh, okay, I guess I'll leave, but he had to make a choice. This was his mark of the beast moment. And when he did, he basically was considered dead by his father, or he considered his father Terah dead. We'll, we'll come back to that. Now, we don't know where the Tower of Babel was, for sure. Some believe that it was this Beers Nimrud here. Um, this has been excavated a little bit. Uh, some say it is it. I don't know. Others say that there was one because they did find one that was even larger than this that had been taken apart stone by stone when Alexander the Great conquered it. He basically took it apart brick by brick, found nothing, but you know was looking for treasure, and they just didn't find any. But um, who knows whether or not this is one of the Tower of Babels or not. All I know is God did not allow them to finish it. When Abraham was born in Ur of Chaldeas, the Chaldeans, it would have been 1950 B.C., and I will explain how we know this, but I think that is a very accurate date based on Scripture. So 1950 B.C., Abraham is born. The Bible tells us in Genesis 11, verse 31, Terah took Abram his son, Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, which would be the promised land today, right along the Mediterranean Sea. But when they came in to Haran, they settled there. They settled at Haran first. Now, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we know that Abraham would have come from the line of Shem. One of the things we have also put in our museum is some maps and things from a book called Trace. One of the newest information as far as genetic tracing and studying goes. And we can take and trace the Y chromosome all the way back to a single beginning point 4,500 years ago. That's relatively new science, isn't it? Very new science, yes. 4,500 years it goes back. Now you might say, well, why not 6,000? Well, because the Y chromosome is traced only through the male. And what ends up happening is we see that whatever Noah had, we can trace it back to him, but that's as far back as we can go because then Noah has three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. 
And they have been able to trace, and we can see almost, I would say, proof positively of what people groups, for the most part, come from Ham, Shem, or Japheth. And so there are maps that kind of show you where they settled and whatnot. Now, sometimes these get moved around, but we can still trace this through the male gene only. But I'm not going to get into any more of the details on that outside to share that with you. Um, what's neat about where Abraham grew up, coming from Shem, God is going to call out of the family of Shem, out of that family line, Abraham. That's the beginning of it all. In the beginning of the covenant and the promise to a, a, a certain group of people. Now, this is a picture of Ur right here. It is said that they are the ones that invented cuneiform writing, which I'll show you here in a moment. But during the excavations, they have found that Ur was one of the most advanced in math, in geometry, and in science, which will be significant here coming up. They found four little clay barrels, like they're small, that have these, this writing on it. And this is the cuneiform writing I was telling you about. This particular one that you can see is talking about the king who had built this big ziggurat. And this king was living during the time of Abraham, or at that time, Abram. It gives you an idea of the kind of life, maybe, or culture that Abraham was growing up in. Affluential, very educated. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, a caveman mentality by any means. This cylinder describes the temple of the moon god Sin and his wife Nanner, who were worshiping at Ur by King Nabonidus. And it also has a prayer uh, for his son, which was named Belshazzar. So we see all this paganism from the, the king. The culture tells us that this was not a godly place. And Abraham was called out of that. I want you to understand that we are living in a pagan society. We are living... It might have a facade of Christianity, and at one time, maybe this country was a Christian nation. President Obama, you know, is kind of famous for getting up and saying, you know, we're no longer a Christian nation. We're a Buddhist nation, an Islamic nation, all of these other things. He took a beating for that. But I agree with him. We no longer are a Christian nation. We were founded as a Christian nation, but we no longer are. And I want you to understand that God has called us to be separate, just as he had called Abraham to be separate. It was not easy for him. As a matter of fact, as I'm about to show you soon, it seems that when he left, he even considered his father dead, but his father was still alive. But the scriptures tell us that that when he was so old, when his, when his father died, he leaves. But then we later see 
the, genealogy, the genealogies tell us that, no, he was still alive. Doesn't match up. Today, we see the same thing going on in Judaism, where, especially with the Orthodox, if they leave the faith, you're dead. We had a professor at college who became a Messianic Jew, and her family disowned her. If she would walk down the side of a road, her family would go to the other side, face their backs towards her, like look up against a wall and wait for her to go by before they would even turn around. That's the Jewish mentality, and yet this is what Abraham grew up in. That might mean that we are going to have to make some difficult choices as well. Maybe we will have family members that we have to turn our back on. And I know already your, your hair is standing up like, ah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. There is a certain process or few steps that I think are important that you go through before something like that would happen. But you know what the Bible tells us? In 1 Corinthians 5, it says that if anyone calls himself a brother, that is a Christian, who is sexually immoral, greedy, an adulterer, and a whole list of sins, it says, with such a person, do not even eat. Do not associate with such people. Not even allowed to eat with them. Now, this is a brother who you've already gone through the, the Matthew, I always get it confused, 18 or 19, I think it's 18, where they you first go to them if they are living in sin. Now, this isn't just because you have a theological difference with them. But they're living in sin. You go to them. And if they don't listen, you bring somebody else. And if they still don't listen, then you excommunicate. We hear all the time where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. And we kind of talk about that. And I myself have been guilty of this where we go and we will, you know, say, hey, there's three of us in prayer. Well, well, two or three are gathered, right? But the bottom line is, if you go look at the context of that, the context is church discipline. And what he was saying is that where two or three are gathered to practice church discipline, I, my spirit, am there among you, giving you my support. That's what that verse means. Go look at it in context. Go see what's talking about before and everything. Point being, as Abraham had some choices to make, there may be times in our life that we may have those tough choices too. There are thousands and millions of different examples. I'm not going to go through those. I'm just saying that you might have to face those someday. Anyway, <clears throat> we are not in a Christian-friendly society anymore, and I only think it's going to get worse. And I think we may be facing more of Abraham-type choices in the future. But Abraham believed God, trusted God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In 1922, Leonard Woolley, Charles Leonard Woolley, he excavated some more of the town of Ur, and he found that they had two-story buildings. They had drainage systems that actually are better than what they have in Iraq today. 
which may not be saying a lot, but at the same time, it does say something. This is what he said. Many school tablets survive and illustrate the course of study. Long lists of single signs with phonetic values. After grammar came math, and we find tables of multiplication and division, tables for the extraction of squares, cube roots, exercises, and applied geometry. Matter of fact, we see that they had Pythagoras' theorem before Pythagoras was alive. So these are things that we credit. And first of all, we think, especially from an evolutionary perspective, you go back in time, people were idiots. I believe they were smarter than we are. Okay? I could do a whole message just on that alone. I, you know, I don't know how they were able to. I know they can read it. There's something called pre-cuneiform writing that we don't really understand yet. Kind of like we have in Hebrew. There's Hebrew and Paleo-Hebrew. Um, we can understand both of those. But I, I don't know how it came about that they were able to read cuneiform. I'm not sure. Not, not studied up on that. Good question, though. Well, I find it interesting because Josephus, a Jewish historian around the time of Christ, this is what he says about Abraham. Abraham communicated to the Egyptians arithmetic and delivered to them the science of astronomy. For before Abram came into Egypt, they were unacquainted with those parts of learning. For that science came from the Chaldeans into Egypt. Fascinating that he records that because we did not know that Ur was a smart city until 1922. And Josephus is telling us that Abram grew up in a smart town and is now passing on his smarts to the Egyptian. I don't think it's an accident that when we look at our corrected timeline of pharaohs, which again I'm not going to get into, but it happens to be at about 1850 B.C. that we see the pyramids go from the Bent Pyramid and these other kind of poorly designed ones to the perfect lining up, you know, with astronomy exactly. It may not be an accident that this is why when this unknown guy from Chaldea comes into Egypt, that Pharaoh blesses him tremendously. Even, you know, after lying about his wife and all of this, he, Pharaoh still blesses him. Why? There was some sort of merit, it seems. I'm sure a lot of it was just the blessing of God, but I'm sure God used something for Pharaoh to give him that kind of respect. Well, let me show you here, biblically, how we know these dates. I would say pretty much everybody, even in the secular world or the Christian world, agrees that Solomon was king in 969 B.C. We have records, we have writings, we have you know archaeology, we have a lot of different things that will back up these things where we can see this. And... Likewise, it's pretty. It's also based off of we know when when the Babylonians conquered uh, Jerusalem, all of that kind of thing. 586 BC, 587 BC, all kind of you know depending on their first, second, or third attack. 
But the Bible tells us here, if you look at the very first scripture verse there on the top, in the 480th year after Israel had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So 480 years after Israel left Egypt. So what we all have to do is just take your 969 B.C. back up 480 years, and what do you get? 1445 B.C. They leave Egypt. Okay? The second verse here, it says, The time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. That's Exodus 12:41. We know they were in Egypt to the very day that they entered Egypt, 430 years. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promises to Abraham or the covenant, that's Galatians 3, 16 and 17. In other words, again, Abraham was called 430 years before the law was given in the Exodus in 1445 B.C. So, you take 430 years away from that, you get 1875 B.C. for the covenant being given to Abraham. How old was Abraham when the covenant was given to him? Well, that tells us there in the last verse, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Once Terah died, Abram left Haran. Genesis 12, 14, or 4 there. He went to Shechem, God appeared to him. And so we see this, and so 75 years away from that puts it at around 1950 B.C. that Abraham would have been born then because he was 75 years old when God came to him, made a promise, a covenant. So, anyway, with that said, that means Abraham leaving Haran when he's 75 years old, 1875 B.C., he goes then into Egypt because there is this famine. And this would be, uh, he goes to Haran too there, that would be about 1850 B.C., roughly 25 years after the covenant was given. We do not know the exact date of that, but somewhere in his lifetime there, we're given it about 25 years. And at that time, 1850, as I said, we see these pyramids in getting much nicer, using perfect math. And as I said as well, in Genesis 12, 16, we see that Pharaoh blesses him tremendously with all kinds of things. Maybe that's why. Well, after he leaves Egypt, he's been called. We now have a people, a people group that God is blessing, that he is protecting, and he is going to protect that covenant. And we can trace this covenant all the way through history, all the way up to the present day. Someday we are going to do a series that is going to trace that. But when he comes back to the land, he has his nephew Lot with him, and their herdsmen, because he's with Abraham, he's under the household of Abraham, they're being blessed so tremendously that their herdsmen are quarreling. And so they say, well, listen, we've, we've got to separate. There's not enough space for all of us here. And he says, you choose where you want to go. 
Whatever you do, I'll go the opposite. Lot, being the unselfish nephew that he was, looked toward the area of the Dead Sea, and he saw that it looked like the Garden of God. It was beautiful. So he chose that. Abraham said, fine, I'll go the other way. Well, it isn't long after this that Abraham first camps near Sodom and Gomorrah. And then pretty soon we see that the scriptures say he was facing Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the scriptures say he was in the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, just like Abraham, when he didn't decide and make a conscious choice, or had he not made a conscious choice to leave Ur, to leave his father's household, to leave paganism behind, that paganism influences you without you even realizing it. I'll be the first to attest that I have had so much paganism that I allowed in my life and in my culture, and I did not even realize it, even began to call it Christian because of my culture, following what God's, what, what culture said rather than what God's Word said. Lot did that same thing. Lot, rather than staying away and separating himself from this world, camped near it, and then faced it, and then was in it. Now I know, as I've said before, Lot was a righteous man because Peter tells us that. But if you ask me to name ten righteous people in Scripture, Lot would not come to my mind. And you may say, well, I can handle it. Well, that's great. Maybe Lot could handle it. But his kids couldn't. His kids could not handle it. And I'm sad to say that we put our children in positions today, putting them out in the culture and in the world in things that they can't handle. And we think, oh, they're Christian. It's going to be okay. They'll be fine. And they can't handle it. What amazes me is we put them in situations that, honestly, most adults can't even handle. Most adults can't even witness in their workplace. Most adults, when they get around people who have a different culture than the Christian one find themselves slipping a little bit here and there. And yet we expect our kids to say, don't slip. And this is exactly what happened to Lot and his children. Because as you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, The city was filled with homosexuality, violence, ungodliness. And yes, as Peter tells us, Lot was tormented in his mind over those things. He left. His wife was so influenced by it that she looked back in longing for it, what she had to leave behind. She couldn't leave the culture behind. And she perished because of it. They get out, he gets drunk, and his two daughters rape him, which is where we get the Moabites and the Ammonites from. They become enemies of Israel, all because rather than separating himself from the culture, he blended in with it. I can guarantee you Lot thought, hey, we're doing okay. I know I see trouble. I know the world is getting dark. 
but I know God. Come on, let's pray. Let's have our Bible studies. Let's talk about Yahweh. But it affected their family. And I think that we need to be very careful about that in our lives, that we don't allow culture and our love for culture and our love for this world to keep us from being separated from it. And that is in many different ways. Some of you have gone to Sodom and Gomorrah areas where at least I'm pretty sure this is it. I can't put an A stamp on it. But I think there is a lot to support that this is Sodom. This is looking down at what looks almost like a pyramid-type structure here and a sphinx-type structure down below. Over here you'd see streets and things, and it doesn't look like much. This is from up at Masada. Down over here you would be able to see some Roman encampments when the Romans went and surrounded Masada and, and killed a bunch of Jews up there, or basically they ended up committing suicide. But... When you go down there, you can see this picture doesn't do it justice. From up top, you still see a very stark contrast. As you go down below, you can see what kind of stark contrast it is, this little area compared to all the area around it. It's just white, burned. I've shown you some of these sulfur balls before. I've got some in the office. I took some to the museum. So I'm not going to talk about it much here now, but this is a picture of hell. That burning sulfur. And that's not, not just me saying it. This is what Scripture says, that they serve as an example to those who disobey. Sodom and Gomorrah are to serve as an example. And by the way, this is what New Testament is telling us. So if you, know, you kind of feel like, oh, that's Old Testament judgment. No, this is New Testament saying that, hey, remember Sodom and Gomorrah because that serves as an example of what's coming. A burning sulfur and brimstone, hell picture. Well, as we know, then the we start getting these enemies of Israel coming about. And then Abraham has to rescue him and all of these kind of things go on too. But bottom line is Abraham then has some children. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac then is going to find a wife named Rebekah. And through a number of stories that they do, um, we see the wedding when they get married. It says here in Genesis 24, verse 22, When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. So she took her veil and covered herself. The critics say, your Bible's wrong again. First of all, the camels were not domesticated at this time in the, uh, the times of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. They didn't have camels back then. Your Bible's wrong. They don't have that till the Iron Age. Well, first of all, just because it's not recorded or that you don't know that they had, it doesn't mean it didn't exist. Second of all, we have evidence that they did exist. Um, and third of all, your timing is off anyway. Right? 
Ezekiel 16 also says, I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. We, we see all of this adorning of a bride. And critics would also say that, that they didn't really do that. They would be too poor. They couldn't give all of these kind of riches. And, and it wasn't like that at all. But yet we also see this tell here from the early bronze period where... It was excavated in 1933 in Iraq, and this is basically the time of Isaac. They found this area here had 260 rooms in a single palace. Thousands of these tablets and cuneiform writing were found, and one of them talked about his king sending two servants to find a wife and how she veiled herself how she was lavished with all kinds of gifts, basically a carbon copy of what Scripture talks about with Isaac and Rebekah. So, again, archaeology shows that this is okay. So, um, anyway, they're going to grow up, they get married, they have Jacob and Esau. Tonight I'm going to talk and focus on Esau. I was wanted to get here a little bit sooner, but I'm long-winded as you all know. After 20 years, Rebekah gives birth to these twins, Esau and Jacob, and these two, from the very time of the womb, are at each other. And we've talked in the past how Jacob, you know, he's called the heel grabber, and how we, we probably give Jacob a hard time because he's grabbing the heel. It's funny how we do that because it's the same thing that happens in the world today. I don't know if it was Ron or Amir or something sent a, a picture. There was this, <clears throat> like a, I can't think of which country, but one of the, probably the BBC camera lens, and it's got a Palestinian chasing a Israeli with a knife. He's like this, and the, the Israeli is just running. <clears throat> but in the camera lens... It shows a shadow of what they're seeing, and it shows the Israeli taking a knife to the Palestinian. The very opposite of what reality is, is what the camera is showing. I think that the very thing we're seeing in our society right now, where all of these people are blaming Israel for what they're doing, is exactly what we do with Jacob in the womb. Jacob was the heel grabber, the deceiver, the deceptor. I don't have time to get into it tonight outside of to say, I think there is so much biblical support to show you that he was not the deceiver, but that he was actually, as some of the people have said, it, it's more of a protecting himself. That he was grabbing the heel to keep from having his head crushed, a picture of what Satan wants to do to Jacob. And he was being protected, protecting himself. Now, again, that's a whole message in itself. And there's, I think, some very good biblical evidence to support this, but I'm not going to go in there. For now, that's the gist of it. We know that they fight and fight and fight. Esau... We, you know, gave up his birthright for a bowl of red stew. Esau 
a birthright was very important. I mean, this is like selling your soul, in a sense. It, it, this isn't, it, it didn't matter to him. His relationship and his covenant and his, his connection to God didn't matter, is really what this comes down to. Well, we know that Jacob goes away. He marries Rachel and Leah. After 20 years, he's coming back to meet Esau. And it says he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came to meet his brother, or came near his brother in Genesis 33. We know in the Armana tablets from Egypt that this is exactly what is recorded during that time of cultural things. It says of uh, one king here, um, it says... Abdiheba, king of Jerusalem, writing a king of Egypt, saying, I fall at the feet of the king, my lord, seven times and seven times. So, we're going to talk about Jacob and his life later, but tonight I want to focus on Esau. Esau becomes this very powerful man. He and Jacob do seem to get together a little bit, but we see that the prophecy was that they were going to be at each other and they still are to this very day. And what we see going on today in Israel is because of this very promise as well. Esau becomes known as the Edomites. They were always hostile to Israel. And it says in Psalm 137, verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Man, you could almost, like, Hear that today. There was a video that I saw today of this mother having a baby. A dead Israeli soldier donated his organs to this Palestinian Hamas baby. The mother is, you know, saying, yes, you know, the, the Jews, they love life. We, life means nothing to us. It means nothing to us. What do you hope, the, the reporter said, what do you hope for your boy to grow up and do. Basically, jihad. Jihad on who? Jerusalem. With a smile on her face. Lay it bare. Lay it down. Destroy it. This is what their children are taught from babies. And this is exactly what the scriptures say was the attitude of the Edomites towards Israel. And because of that, God said he's going to wipe out the Edomites. Are you guys familiar that there is a book in the Bible called Obadiah? I know it's probably you know because, you know, it's kind of in our songs that we sing. But have you ever read the book of Obadiah? Probably have. Could anybody tell me what Obadiah is about? Yeah, it's about the destruction of the Edomites. One chapter, that's all it is. A very short book. But the whole thing is about the destruction of those who went against Israel. The whole thing. The Edomites settled in this area of Petra. This is one of the places we were supposed to be going. And eventually we will. Hopefully. <laughs> it is... An amazing spot. You come out and you, you see this from another uh, area here. Um, 
what you saw them walking through before. I mean, it's like 300 feet high. It's just, it, there's no place that I've ever been quite like it. This is where the Edomites lived. And I want you to see this before I take you to the book of Obadiah, and that's where we are going to go, so you can turn your Bibles to Obadiah. We are going to read a whole book of the Bible in one Bible study. Let it be known. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, I'm not going to show you all of this, but you can see how amazing it is, how they, they made their dwelling in the cliffs. I could talk about Petra, but I'm not going to tonight. I want to get to the word in this area here. It says in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. God is saying, I'm going to destroy her. Behold, I'll make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? They, they thought they were secure. I mean, who can conquer that? Though you ascend as high as an eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. In other words, from your lofty, pride-filled position... I am going to bring you down. Notice as well here what it said right in verse 1. Um, concerning Edom, arise, uh, uh, the messenger has been sent among the nations. Basically sent out to all over the place. So this isn't something that's going to be quiet. The world is going to know. Verse 5. If thieves have come to you, if robbers at night, and how you will be cut off, oh, how you will be cut off, would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? In other words, if somebody's going to come in and rob their house, they're going to take what they want, and they're going to get out. Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. You see, Esau, he says, even if a robber comes in and robs you, I mean, they're just going to take this, but you... You, do, you didn't even just want to see Jerusalem fall or Israel fall. You wanted them destroyed. And because of your attitude, because of your violence, now by the way here, verse 10, for violence. In Hebrew, that word is Hamas. A lot of people think that this book of Obadiah, because it's about the destruction of the Edomites, was fulfilled in around, there's a couple of time periods that they'll put it, but about 586 B.C. being one of them. That it's all done. Guys, I don't believe that. I believe Obadiah is a prophecy about end times. 
If you read the very last verse, which we'll get to here in a moment, I think it tells you that. This is prophetic of the end. Yet most of Christianity will tell you Obadiah is about the past. I think it's about the past as a picture of the future. So, when Israel was hated by others, what Edom did is they joined in as one with them. But God's basically saying you should have accepted your brothers. And it goes on and it says, But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. They rejoiced. Did you see on October 7th after Hamas went in, the people, the, the civilians, the children, the women, all celebrating. It's almost like you're reading it right out of the book of Obadiah. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people. I found that interesting. Okay, They tore down the walls to go in on October 7th. In the day of their calamity, indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid their hands on their substance. They looted the, the kibbutzes that were over there. In the day of their calamity, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. They were going back and forth trying to go get more, bringing them back. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. Now that word day of the Lord is interesting because that is oftentimes in Scripture it seems to refer to an end times. A lot of people will say that seven-year tribulation period. And so he's saying Israel is having all this destruction. Edomite is, is glorif gl you know, glorying over it. But hey, the day of the Lord upon all the nations, not just Edom, is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Right now in the news, I hear all these people saying, enough already, Israel. I think this is a little bit overkill. We've got riots going on all around the world of pro-Palestinian. Even Candace Owens this last week, even is like, enough already, Israel. Her and Ben Shapiro have been going at it. Candace Owens is supposed to be this conservative, you know, great person. Don't mix conservatism, I can't know if I said that right, but with Christianity. Now, we see... I do need to say, it's not enough already. They need to keep going, and they need to go a lot further. Because as we know, Hamas is, <clears throat> it's not just these terrorists. It's, it's all of the teaching of Islam. And I don't have time to get into that tonight, but sometime I may in the very real near future just talk about Islam. Anyway, 
For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. Interesting. When have they been on God's holy mountain? Right now. You go to God's holy mountain where the temple mount is, what's there? An Islamic mosque. Though you drink there, though you, you, you celebrate there, though you do whatever, he says, it's going to happen as though you had never been. Hmm. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. That's where that mosque is right now. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Now look at this here in verse 19. This is getting interesting. The south, that's literally the Negev or southern Jordan, shall possess the mountains of Esau, okay, southern Jordan, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. That's Gaza today, where the Philistines were. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim, that's by Ramallah, where uh, basically they want the Palestinian state, the fields of Samaria, which would be on the other side, the West Bank. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, that's the northern Jordan. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. Land of the Canaanites is the coastland along the Mediterranean Sea, which again was, is part of Gaza. <clears throat> um, and by the way, the coastland part of which Gaza is, um, what he's saying is that Israel is going to possess that. That has not happened yet. Again, telling you this is future, not in the past. As far as Zarephath, which is basically northern Lebanon, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad, basically Spain, you've heard of the Sephardic Jews, they're from Spain. They shall possess the cities of the south, the Negev to Gaza. It's interesting, just today, we saw these huge pro-Palestinian riots going on in Spain because it's a pro-Palestinian government in Spain. Jews are going to need to flee from Spain. <clears throat> then saviors, literally saved ones, shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of, of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So what he's saying is, I'm going to judge you, Esau, you people who keep going against your brothers, and I'm going to give you the land from the south to the north, from the sea to the end, basically the promised land. And then, he says, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is not just about the past. This may be happening right now. I don't know. I'm not saying it is. But you go and study this a little bit more, and you're going to find it is a very interesting thing. Um, I'm going to close with this last one here. Amos 6.2. Go over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? In essence, what we're seeing again is more this the, the, the Philistine 
Palestinian area, you might say. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their ter territory greater than yours? Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seat of violence to come near. Again, not saying, but I wouldn't put it past God to do this, because again in Hebrew, who caused the seat of Hamas to come near. They have allowed the seat, the government, the authority of Hamas to be right next door. They put up a wall to keep them up. They gave visas to allow Hamas violence to come in. And here it is in Scripture talking about this very same thing, perhaps. That chant to the sound of the viol, which is a 12-stringed instrument, and to invent to themselves instruments of music like David. I don't have time to get into it outside of this. In the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, there is a book... Um, I don't remember what it is. I think it's like, uh, well, I won't even say right now without remembering it. But there's a section of the Dead Sea Scrolls that talk about Psalm 112. And many of the Psalms you have them talk about to the, to the, uh, to the musician, uh, with tune to the whatever, right? In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it talks about that, and it says that one of these each one of these stringed instruments, they have different numbers of strings. And there it talks about this one being the eighth onah, almost like an eighth period or uh, an eighth time. Some have proposed that in the Psalms it might be prophetic that these periods tuned to the, you know, however that's worded, might be to a specific time period. I don't know. It may not be that. But it's interesting that we see that 12 strings here and that connects maybe to kind of an end time thing as well. I'll just leave it at that because I'm out of time, but you get the idea. Um, go ahead. I was under the impression that modern Palestine is more closely tied to the Philistine people as opposed to the people. Is that correct? Well, <clears throat> the part that I didn't talk about when we got to Petra was what happened to the Edomites. Technically, it seems like they were wiped out. The last... What we, they became known as the Idumeans, which is interesting because the um, Herod, who killed all the babies, was an Idumean. So he was also from the Esau line. Which means they couldn't have technically been <coughs> all of them. And also the fact that, first of all, that picture again, that they're constantly trying to destroy Israel. Herod, an Edomian, that picture is trying to destroy Israel. I think that when we talk about this in Scripture, just because it says Edomites, I don't think it necessarily has to be bloodline. He's talking about geographical locations more than anything. And so today, even though I wouldn't say that the Palestinians are necessarily from there, although some are because like the Jordanians and Jordan, Petra, that's Esau's land. That that area today would be considered Edomites, I think biblically speaking, but not necessarily genetically speaking. It doesn't have to be. But I think anybody who is going against Israel in that area today would be lumped into that same category. 
So I'm glad you asked that question because that's important. Um, anyway, I want you to just look that over again this week, Obadiah, because I do believe that there is prophecy unfolding. I don't know if this is the end, if this is not the end, if we've got another 50 years, if we've got five years. I don't know. All I know is that it's time to wake up. We're living in a culture, as I said, in the United States where we've got pro-Palestinian stuff going on all over the place, and God says that they're going to be destroyed because you're going against your brothers. And God is going to allow, as you'll see, even in the book of Obadiah, for Israel to be disciplined because they too have fallen away. I talked with Jordan, or not Jordan, uh, Logan this week about Isaiah 39 and 40 and what a change there is, all the judgment in chapters before chapter 39 and after that. And some people think that that's a, uh, like two different authors or, you know, written after many years. I don't think so. I, I believe that this is the same book, but this is the, what you need to understand is God is a God of wrath, but he's also a God of mercy. And there is going to be wrath. But in wrath, Lord, remember mercy. As I think Habakkuk 3, 2 perhaps says. And so God is reminding us of that. That if we are in the end times and if things are going to get rough and tough, remember mercy. Remember that the judge who is on your side is coming. And that is a good thing. And if we have to sit in jail for a little bit to wait for the verdict to be taken and, and you know pronounced, I'm okay with that. We need to learn to live with less in order to not rely on ourselves and not to, to fight for what this culture has to offer us. We, we should be willing to give it all up now so that when somebody else comes to take it, we're not fighting for it. We're like, take it, I don't care. I got God. And so think about those things as you go back and look at Obadiah. And we will continue to look at God's faithfulness to his covenant through his line as we go and see some things in archaeology. But for now, we're going to wrap that up tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your promises that you never let fall to the ground. Lord, though it may seem at times that you're far off and you're, you're not involved, we know you are. Just as in the book of Esther, Lord, you let it get very dire, even for the Jews, right up to the point that Haman was hung on his own gallows. And so though things could look bleak at times, Lord, we trust you and we confess and proclaim your promises that we know the end result. We win because you win. So thank you, Jesus, for being a God who sees, a God who cares, and a God who is forgiven. In the name of Yeshua, Jesus, we pray. Amen.